to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today we have a really special guest for you, Mason Moreland. He is a real estate investor and wine grape vineyard developer, operator, responsible for growth, finance, and process improvement at Texas Vine Country, TVC. TVC is turbocharging the growth of the Texas wine industry by combining real estate syndication with vineyard mechanization and automation tech to aggressively expand. And just four years after starting on this journey, TVC is now in the top five Texas vineyards by acreage. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, Mason. We all love wine and we really want to see how we can invest in real estate and put those two together. Yeah, thanks thanks for having me. It's awesome awesome to be here with you and happy to share what what we've been working on and uh, where we're going in the future. Awesome. So Mason, I would love if you can share, you know, your background and how you got started in the wine grape vineyard investment real estate side of things. Yeah. So the, the 10 second spiel is I am not a, a wine guy or a grape guy. I am a biologist by trade and somehow uh, stumbled my way into real estate and and from there sort of springboarded off into this vineyard vineyard stuff. But um, the, what we had been doing, uh, my family and I was investing in, in just your typical residential real estate, right? Single family homes, the rich dad, poor dad, you know, accumulate rental properties. And then you get to that point, you know, where you're like, okay, I've got like seven or eight of these things. This isn't really scalable. We got to do something else. So we start looking at multifamily. And that's kind of where I got my first taste of, you know, the syndication space and understand, starting to understand kind of what, what syndicators do and how that industry operates. And we tried to tackle our first one on our own. Did not go well. Abject failure in the sense that the deal did not go through, but, but we were able to pull out before we lost probably a lot of money on, uh, on a bad deal. So that was good. But in the interim, I had been talking with some of my friends that were involved in the industry. And at this point, I had underwritten a whole bunch of different stuff, businesses and uh, different real estate opportunities, commercial real estate, things like that. And there's something here. And, you know, being a biologist, I, I'm really, I do have a genuine draw back to the land. I want to produce things. I want to, I want to do something tangible. And that's what I like about residential real estate is you provide a tangible good for somebody. And so I started underwriting with numbers that I could get from friends. And my first inclination was, this is not, this is, you're putting in four years of work just to get to real production. It's a ton of money, huge cash burn for, you know, four or five years. And then, uh, you can get wiped out by hail. What's the point? You know, you're going to get frozen and then you let, it's just farming. I don't, I don't want to do that. So I kind of put it to the side for a while and uh, kept coming back to it and realized that what's happening in Texas is we're sort of at that same stage California was at in maybe the seventies where everybody's bootstrapping and experimenting in the vineyard and really trying to figure out what works here. But everybody's kind of doing the same thing right now, more or less some variation on the same thing. So we looked to California said, what can we bring from the big operators, you know, that have thousands and thousands and thousands of acres out there uh, and are highly successful and copy that over here? Uh, Because nobody's doing that. The largest vineyard operator out here is around a thousand acres uh, total. And the total acreage in the state is only 5,000. So that alone, that's just 20% right there. So we started looking at that and realized nobody's mechanizing anything here. 
Nobody is working on economies of scale uh, to drive those operational costs down, which was the big killer for a deal like this. Uh, you're talking a uh, swing from uh, the tr- more traditional trellising systems that, that uh, the vines grow on, that you know, you're talking maybe a person for 10 acres, depending on what method you're using to what we're doing. We run 320 acres with two people. So it's a huge difference. You know, it's, it's more machine-based. It's a bigger investment up front with machines, uh, but you can't really do that. You, know, you can't really afford to spend that uh, on that machinery until you go it to scale. So that's kind of how we got sucked into this is looking at that and saying, hey, there's a real opportunity here to disrupt. Yeah, it's, you know, what we kind of were a little talking a little bit earlier before we started recording was I never knew that Texas was a big wine country. Yeah, most most people don't think about it as being wine growing country. And it, I mean, you know, to be candid, it, it is not California where a monkey could stick a grapevine in the ground and probably make great wine. You know, it's not that stupid easy. You have to you have to use some science behind it and think through it. But yeah, we're the fifth largest uh, wine producing wine grape producing state um, in the U.S. behind uh, the West Coast plus New York. Um, but there's a big deficit, so. Texas produces, they have, just to put it in acreage terms, we produce about 10,000 acres worth of wine every year. And almost all of that wine is consumed in the state. There's almost none that leaves the state. But we only have about 5,000 acres of grapes. So that differential there is actually imported as bulk wine and bulk juice from the West Coast. So kind of our our main disruptive goal there is to make Texas self-sufficient because right now, Texas grapes are too expensive. You cannot make that sweet spot value bottle of wine you can get from every other region that's, you know, between 10 and $20. That's phenomenal. You can do that all day with California. Yeah. And so like from an environmental standpoint, does Texas, is it capable of housing all that wine and and building up the vineyards? Um, You know, like how you mentioned California, the environment is very sustainable for vineyards. Is that the same case in Texas or is there some more variables due to the climate and the environment? Yeah, there's definitely some more variables. Uh, They actually do work in our benefit in some ways. So with where we are in the Texas High Plains, which is the western third of the state, kind of in the panhandle, southern panhandle region of, of West Texas, what we get is we get really cold winters. And we get some sporadic weather that we have to deal with. It's difficult, like hail and late frosts after green up and things like that. So we have mitigating things. But because of those, we also are spared other issues that other regions have. So like the rest of Texas is uh, warm and humid enough the rest of the year that they have pests that vector diseases that are found in, in places like California, too. They have uh, issues with mold, very serious fungus issues with, uh, they try to rot the grapes, they try to kill the vines, so you're spraying constantly. So our price is actually a lot lower, but there's a good band of traditionally agricultural area over here in the in West Texas, in the Southern Panhandle, that is phenomenal for growing grapes. You just have a little bit of a different risk set. So you're trading uh, some disease issues for uh, some weather mitigation issues, right? But if you look behind me, I mean, it's dead flat. This whole area is traditionally agriculture. It's hard to find a field that is plowed over for the last 20, 50, or 100 years. Uh, so it's, it's pretty easy to transition over to grapes out here. And so when you're looking at a new investment and new land, what, are, what do you look for when you start to develop a place to build up a vineyard? There's a couple primary ones that I'm going to look at. 
first. The biggest one, like I said, you know, with the weather, we want to make sure that we're doing, we're choosing good micro topography. So the actual lay of the land, it looks dead flat, but there's a little bit of variation out there. And what we want to avoid is being in sort of a bowl because that cold air, when we do get cold air in the spring after green up, we want that cold air to, to sink and drain away from the vineyard. So we'll make sure we choose things that are gently sloping away out to the corners or we won't plant in areas that are kind of a bowl. And those do exist out here. And then secondly, we'll look for water because we do rely on aquifer water out here. And we use significantly less than, you know, say cotton. Cotton is still king out here, but um, we use significantly less water than, than cotton or other traditional irrigated crops. So that's good. We can get by on a lot less. But those are the two big ones is uh, topography and water. And so as you're going into a new venture and like, how do you guys create value in a vineyard investment? Like, what do you guys do to, you know, you talked a little bit about the operational sides um, to bring down the cost. There's a high cost um, that they typically operate in, but what are some of the other ways that you guys create value in this space? Yeah, that's, I mean, like you said, that's the main one, 70% less OPEX uh, or our break even is, you know, 70% less than most, most folks out here. So our margin's pretty good there. It's most comparable, I think, to commercial real estate development, for sure. So you're taking a piece of raw land, what's essentially raw land, converting it to a different use and building something that's generating uh, cash flow for many years on the property. So that's really the main way we create values is by doing that. And I think I said it before we started recording, but we focus mainly on just the, the growing of the grapes portion value chain. There's, there's a few portions. There's uh, the folks that grow the baby grapes, baby vines, so to speak, uh, for other people to plant. There's growers that grow fruit for winemakers to use. There are folks that just process and produce wine, but don't necessarily sell the bottle. And then there are people that sometimes do both, but market actual retail bottle or labels to folks. So we focus mainly on that growing that second second portion of the value chain. And what is like the typical time frame that you guys see when you guys are before you guys turn a profit? So that's one of the main differences between what we do and what you would normally see in commercial real estate. Because it's like development, we're planting in you know year one, uh, the vines go up to the trellis, and then it takes several years for us to, to grow them out to the correct size, and then we can start pushing production. So it takes five years to get to that stabilized production level. And really starting in year four is where you start to see uh, distributable profits uh, is is in year four. And then year five and beyond are, are kind of your typical years that you'll see out to about 25. And that's about when you would uh, start looking at potentially replanting some vines. And, you know, for the, an, a vineyard investment, you know, what are some of the, I guess, the advantages and disadvantages of investing in a vineyard? And also what are some of the, I guess, challenges that you guys have to face? So let's start with disadvantage. Those are the, the easy ones, right? Let's knock those out because everybody wants to hear what's bad about, about an asset class. So the disadvantages, you don't want to be in vineyards if you're trying to get in and out of assets really fast, right? This is not liquid. You're not going to go down you know, to FISBO and log on and sell a 300-acre vineyard for $30 million just from liquidity split. It's, it takes a very specific buyer. And there's only a few people out there that do that. And you know that's fine. That's part of our strategy is to position such that if we ever get to the point where we want to sell these assets, we're attractive to those large buyers, but not for somebody that wants hyper liquid assets. It's really not for people that want to see a high ROI in years one and two, because that's just not going to happen with the vineyard. You're never going to see any production from a reasonable uh, producer that's that's really caring for the vines in those first couple of years, because you're really trying to focus on, on just growing them up. 
So it's, it's not for either of those. If you're risk averse to farming, if you're scared of that and you're, you know, you're not confident in, in insurance coverage, probably not a great asset class for you. It's similar risk profile to commercial real estate and weather and things like that. You just different risks, right? Different weather risks and different insurance. But as far as advantages, it's a real legacy asset. So, you know, these things produce at an incredible level from years five to 25. And then it's sort of like, I like to get to an oil well. I'm actually, uh, I worked in oil and gas for a number of years as well. And you have this big buildup. It's a lot of struggle. You're trying to drill the well, you're spending a ton of money, and then you have no production. And then finally comes online and it's a huge amount of production. Then you have this nice, easy decline curve out into the, the following years. And eventually, yeah, you're going to have to drill a new well. In our case, you're going to have to replant some vines as their production starts to drop slowly and slowly, but you have a good runway to, to save up that money to do it. That's part of our plan. You know, it's also great just to be perfectly honest. Like you said, it's a cool asset class. You know, it's got that sizzle. It's a sexy asset. So, I mean, if you want a trophy investment that performs great, it's perfect, but it has to compensate for not producing during those initial years with much higher returns in the later years. So that's where it's important to have that high margin to do so that your IRR is actually look good out over that, that amount of time. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. And so for this one here, what kind of are the risks that you guys see um, in going into an investment like this? I mean, the major risks are, like I said, if there's any kind of weather-related issues, those are always hard. You know, if you get, um, you probably saw in the news, right? In February, we had that giant freeze down in Texas. And that didn't hurt us in the high plains necessarily, nearly as bad as anywhere else. We personally didn't have, aren't showing any vine death or vine collapse from that freeze. But in other areas of Texas, the vines were already coming out of dormancy. So they had leaves out and they absolutely got hammered by that freeze. And it's, you know, it's a once in a hundred year thing. And sometimes it happens. So that's why we try really hard to, to take out really good insurance policies to make sure that we're covering ourselves not only for damage to the vines for any kind of hail, frost, freeze events during the winter, things like that, in addition to the yield loss uh, of anything like that. So we're kind of going from both directions to make sure we protect ourselves. Can you share what a typical like return structure would look like on like a, just like a standard or an average investment like this? Yeah, sure. So we structure everything very similarly to a typical apartment syndication. There's a GP and an LP. Uh, starts off at you know something like a 70-30 split. And then once you know the distributions hit a certain uh, tier, it drops out to a 50-50 split between the GP and LPs. And there's, there's really two main models, either the buy and hold or the, the develop and hold or the develop refi and hold. Because uh, later on down the road, once you've demonstrated good production, you can have a much higher valuation by DCF appraisal. So in a typical investment, you're looking at, if you're just buying and holding, it's going to average out 
in those later years between like years eight to 25 at around an 18 to 24% uh, cash on cash annualized return for a buy and hold with no refinance. And then in those earlier years, you're looking more in the high, uh, mid to high 30s uh, cash on cash for like years four and five to about year eight. And then that's when you hit that waterfall tier and uh, drop back down. But in all cases, usually you get payback of your initial capital in about year eight. And then from there on, it just keeps chugging along at a high rate. And especially if you do a refi model, sort of like you would in, in a multifamily or commercial real estate deal in say year eight, you can see very, very good returns, You know, multiples in the two to three range pretty quick in, in the first 10 years with sustained cash flow after that. That's the key because you're still getting that you know 10 or 12% cash on cash annual return return on capital that you no longer even have in there. So it's technically, you know, infinite, which is good. (laughs) (laughs) We like infinite. (laughs) Yeah. I love infinite returns. That's the best. So I like the refi model when we can swing it. And uh, typically you'll, you'll, if you've got, you know, three good years of showing here's how much revenue we're producing. It's like any other asset, a commercial asset, it increases in value significantly. And are you able to see and utilize the same types of deduct or tax benefits as you would see in a typical like real estate investment? Yeah, in some ways you are. Uh, in some ways you aren't. So it's nice in that you do get some bonus depreciation right up at the front. So I want to say it's around 25% bonus depreciation right off the bat. But where you really see the biggest gains is that on your distributed profits, you accumulate so much loss that are suspended during those first few years when you're standing standing the vineyard up and there's no production, that you really don't pay taxes for very long out on those distributed profits out in the future because you can then go back and apply those in the future. So it's similar in a net sense, but the structure of it's different. Got it. And so for Mason, for you, what is next for you and what is your next focus? Totally dominate Texas and then keep going out from there. So, uh, you know, our, our, our overarching goal is to, you know, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but uh, our, our overarching goal is to be what Texas doesn't have now. And that's really displace what we're importing to produce wine in the state of Texas from the West Coast. Uh, there's just not anybody producing Texas grapes at the quality and quantity needed to get that nice value to your wine. Uh, so that's what we're aiming for. And then the market just, you know, between the Rockies and the Mississippi River is of similar size to just Texas. So there's really, and the deficit there is very similar on what they produce versus what the amount of grapes they produce. So from there, we want to expand out and, and really dominate that, that market east of the Rockies. So I need to ask, once the vineyard has now produced the wine and you guys have bottled up a new bottle of wine, are you guys the first one who gets the taste? Not always, no. <laughs> So definitely the winemaker because he's he's uh you know just I guess to clarify for the listeners the uh, like I said there's a few different parts of the value chain and, and we're mo- mainly just growers uh, you know my our our company the, the GP part that I run does have uh, a custom beverage making business that services other wineries but we're selling the fruit to the wineries and they go and crush it and make wine but we usually do get a heads up before it's released and you can make a call I made a call the other day and. and uh, Later this afternoon, we'll actually have a, a nice case that's that's not available to the public yet uh, for a for a little meeting we're we're doing over here. So that'll be nice. Some semillon. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. This is what they really say—the fruits of your labor, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm so excited to have that one. I haven't had that one yet, so it'll be good. It's from from last year, and I'm really hoping that 2020 tastes 
way better than it felt because 2020, I don't know about everybody <laughs> else, but it was a little bit crazy. So I'm hoping the wine is phenomenal. And I've, everything I've heard from the winemaker down there, tell me, uh, and, and also our, our director of vineyard management who went down there and tasted some before it even went into bottle. Oh, so he's hyped it all up. Yeah, I know. Now he's got me all excited. I was like, come on, just release the thing. Let's do this. I want to buy some. So it's good. Yeah. So Mason, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Oh my gosh, it's, it's had a huge impact. I think the biggest impact has been really outside of business, right? So just the mindset portion that folks in the industry bring and, and the, the, the way people live their lives in this industry that are successful has been really impactful for me in that I've, I've kind of learned how to take action more quickly. And that doesn't just affect your business life. It really affects your family life and it affects your personal relationships. And you start looking at things different, right? You're like, how can I um, identify and solve a problem and not just leave it alone, right? So, you know, honestly, I feel like my family life is even better after getting into real estate. I feel like I do better in my, you know, I still, still am an environmental consultant. I still do that. And I love it. I feel like I'm much better at that after being in real estate because I've learned so many more. You know, I'm a big Grant Cardone, at least the 10x rule fan, among other philosophies, but super helpful on the mindset side. And what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? Gosh, I wish I knew that banks are not business people. They're not business people, <laughs> usually, but bankers are not business people. Don't trust them to understand how businesses work. Don't un- trust them to understand how your underwriting works. Don't trust them to understand how your business model flows. You really got to hold their hand. And that's okay. It's part of the deal, but never put too much faith in somebody that's not necessarily in the industry. I wish I'd known that. And that's that's a big struggle, especially with a unique asset like this. <laughs> and what is one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate investing business? Same thing I said earlier, action. If you're willing to as soon as you see the problem, take a step, really matter what step it is, just go and do something. You're going to be light years ahead of everybody else. And whenever I'm talking with folks that are interested in, in getting into the real estate space, especially from friends from way back or whatever, that's always the biggest hurdle for folks is just doing a thing. Doesn't matter what it is, but just taking a concrete step, like making a phone call, just call 10 people, do something. So that, that's the biggest thing that separates people. And do you have any tools or techniques that you can share with us today about ways that have helped you improve the efficiency of your business or your personal life? Sure. So I think as far as efficiency, I work pretty much all the time. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of hard to say that I've got it. I've got it figured out uh, yet. Uh, so work-life balance is still pretty crazy. But just being able to clearly state, whether it's in your head or out loud, what, what your priorities are. That helps a lot. So for me, it's always going to be my wife and my marriage, really my you know, religion, my wife and my marriage, and then my family, and then everything else. And yeah, business is about at the top of that. But if those first three aren't right, I, I'm not bothering with the other ones. So that helps a lot as far as efficiency. Because if you have your priorities worked out, you've already got the decisions made in your head uh, to an extent. So you can react a lot faster. Oh, yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. So Mason, I really loved our conversation today and we've never had anybody come on talking about wine, uh, vineyards and investment investing in there. And so I learned so much today and it's such a different asset class and there's so much that you don't know about it. But like you said, it is a trophy investment and 
it's something that, you know, it's so cool to go tell your friends like, hey, I'm invested in a vineyard, you know? And so I just think it's great to learn about the different types of asset class. And I'm so grateful that you came on the show today and shared this unique, different investing opportunity. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's It's been a blast talking to you and look forward to continuing our relationship and hope your your listeners have got some useful out of it. I know vineyards are fun for me and just cool asset class. I like talking about it just as much as multifamily and stuff, but it sure looks a lot prettier when you got this background rather than some doors. Yep. So I'll take it. <laughs> so Mason, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? Uh, TexasVineCountry.com. So that's our GP entity uh, for operation and syndication on vineyards, TexasVineCountry.com. And that has a whole bunch of information on just like, what the heck do we do? Where do we do it? And what is it like? And if you're in the area, do you guys do tours for the vineyards? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hit me up on, on the website or on LinkedIn. I'm super active on LinkedIn. It's another place you can find me. I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll pretty much message anybody back, but yeah, we will have to take folks out there. Uh, by appointment. It's uh, one of our partners lives on site. So definitely by appointment. Only. <laughs> I don't wanna, we, we never want any surprises. But uh, yeah, if you're ever in the South Plains area, hit me up and I'd be happy to show you around. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Mason. Thanks, Eileen. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.